All right, and from, that, from the most difficult of the principles, we now move to the most practical of the principles, uh, and also uh, the one that when we first came out, I, I first wrote Five Principles of Unity in 1999, and within a couple of years after that, I was already getting pushback from church leaders about, wow, this principle of accountability, this fourth principle, you need to unpack that more because there's a lot there. There's a lot to this principle. And uh, in fact, we have another entire conference that we do, four hours. I'm going to be doing it next week with a church here in town on just that, this principle alone of accountability. It's a huge deal, and I'm going to try to cover it with you in about 25 minutes. Principle of accountability says, I have responsibility for my brother's relationship with God, and he has responsibility for mine. This is back to, if I may, back to that uh, lion on the prowl seeking whom he will devour the enemy watching and seeing who is tending to separate them, who is pulling away from accountability in the flock. That's where it gets dangerous for us spiritually. This is the principle that shows us how to protect ourselves from the enemy. It's through the process of spiritual accountability to one another, how that works. A lot of places you can look in Scripture to begin to pull from this. Uh, Hebrews 3, 1 Oh, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 18 and 19, and then James chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. 2 Corinthians 5, chapters 18 and 19 is particularly troublesome to me because it's where Paul talks about both the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation, both in one passage. And they're both so critical. Let me read it to you just so this will... This will begin to resonate with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in that one sentence, you've got both the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. What is the connection between the two of those? This is going somewhere important, so let me, get, let me just lay this out. The message of reconciliation is the gospel message. That's the message that we all share with the world around us. The message of reconciliation is simple. God loves you and he forgives you. That's the message of reconciliation. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're coming from, God will take you. God loves you, and he will forgive you. He just wants you in relationship with him. That's the message of reconciliation. It's an incredibly broad message. The ministry of reconciliation is this. And so do I. I love you too, and I forgive you too, and I want to walk in relationship with you too. That's the ministry of reconciliation. What I want you to hear from me is this. Today, as we speak, our youngest adult generation that we are calling millennials are, by the droves, leaving the institutional church. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There's been a lot of studies on that. But the, the overwhelming 
the overwhelming reason that you hear, overwhelmingly, if you were to, if you were to poll 10,000 of them on why they've made that choice, overwhelmingly, the number one answer you will get is this, because the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah. You know it. You, you know that's what they're saying. Now, I have a theory that I operate off of in terms of why, why some people are saying, the reason I believe some people say that the church is full of hypocrites, and I think this is, there's probably a lot more to it than this, but I think the main reason that some people are saying that the church is full of hypocrites is because I believe that the church is, in fact, full of hypocrites. I think it's absolutely true. We are hypocrites. And there's nothing more hypocritical than sending a message out that says God loves you and forgives you and wants to enter into a relationship with you. But I don't. There's nothing more hypocritical than that. And yet, that's the message of the Western church in so many instances. God loves you and forgives you and wants to enter into a relationship with you, but yeah, not us. You don't really belong here. We don't want you here. The ministry of reconciliation is what gives credibility to the message of reconciliation. And if we don't have the ministry of reconciliation going on in our church, then the message is empty. It's shallow. It's meaningless. It doesn't have any... It will not return fruitful at all. No one wants to hear that from us if we don't have the ministry of reconciliation going on, if we're not demonstrating forgiveness at a very high level. We should be the world's experts on forgiveness, we in the church. And my fear is that we have become the poster child for unforgiveness to a watching culture. And so this principle of accountability, if we don't start getting this right, if we don't start figuring this out and figuring out what love looks like in the church, then I don't think we're going to ever have any credibility with our message of reconciliation. The, the, the ministry of reconciliation means a willingness to have hard conversations. It means a willingness to confront. It means a willingness, and by confront, I mean I love you enough to want to address this thing going on in your life. Not because I'm judging you, but because I know that you say you want to follow Christ. And so I want to know how this decision that you're making in your life dovetails in with that decision of wanting to follow Christ. Help me understand this. That's what love looks like. And it's a willingness to have those kinds of hard conversations. It's also a willingness on my part to want that to happen in my life. To want you to be confronting me when I'm stepping in a place that doesn't make any sense in terms of following Christ. When I'm making decisions that don't look like I'm following Christ, I want you to love me enough to come to me and ask me about that and help me get back on track. I want that in my life, and I know I can't do it without you. So this, this whole aspect of, of accountability in the church swirls around our willingness or unwillingness to have hard conversations. Fill in this next blank with me. Ongoing gossip is one of the clearest signs that a church lacks accountability because gossip is what we do Instead of having the hard conversations. Gossip is what we do when we find ourselves talking about someone when we should be talking to someone. But we don't want to talk to them because, let's be honest, that's a hard conversation. That's a difficult conversation. We'd rather talk about them. 
would rather say, well, Matt, you go talk to them. You're the, you're the leader here. Shouldn't you be the one doing this? Aren't we paying you to do that? Isn't that why we pay you? But that's not New Testament. Uh, New Testament is we all are living in relationship with one another in such a way that we're willing to ask hard questions to one another. Uh, this, is a, this is a really hard, uh, I'm, I'm already even feeling myself getting riled up because this is a little bit of a soapbox for me in terms of the church and who it is. But, you know, when Galatians, when Paul says to the Galatian church, when one of you is caught in sin, you who are righteous, go to him and restore him gently, but be careful lest you be caught in the same sin. When, when Paul says something like that, when, when Paul calls upon the you who are righteous to go to him and do this, um, it raises a question, I think, in all of our minds of, well, who is that exactly? Who is that that's supposed to do that? Who is it that's supposed to go and confront? And how's that supposed to work? And we get all bent out of shape about that. I, I imagine uh, one of the stories that I that kind of drives this home for me, and this works here in Texas where football is king, especially on today, this football day. I know some of you are missing games right now. Imagine this. Imagine small town Friday night, under the lights, Friday night football in a small town high school. Imagine that on, a, on one play in the game, a young man takes a particularly bad hit and dislocates a shoulder. And he's laying on the field, and they, they very gingerly help him off the field and bring him over to the sidelines. And the coach looks up into the stands because he knows his parents are up there, and he has the parents come down. And he even, I mean, this is a small town, even Doc Sullivan, who delivered this boy and who's been treating this boy his whole life, is sitting in the stands. He calls him down. And so imagine this young man sitting. They've, they gingerly, they very gingerly and delicately cut his jersey and his shoulder pads off and they take it off and it's right there, this horribly deformed, out-of-socket shoulder. And standing around this young man is his parents and the trainer for the team and the coach and Doc Sullivan and all of his friends and they're all looking at this horribly deformed shoulder and imagine that this argument then breaks out. Who's going to do this? Because you know what needs to be done. This shoulder's got to be set. Who's going to do it? And everyone looks at the coach. The coach says, wait a minute. I have no training in medicine or anything like this. I mean, and I've got to be able to coach this boy. And he'll never listen to me again if I hurt him like this. So don't look at me. And so everyone looks at the parents. And the parents say, well, we're not trained in this either. And besides... We've got to have a relationship with him going forward. And how, what would he think? Of, what kind of trauma would that do to him if his parents are the ones who do this to him? And everyone looks at the little trainer for the high school, and the trainer says, look, I, I, do, I wrap sore ankles and, and stuff like that, but I don't know anything about this, and I don't really even have that much of a relationship with this kid. And it seems to me someone who has a relationship with him should be doing it. And everyone looks at Doc Sullivan, and Doc Sullivan says, last time I saw this kid was when he got his immunizations in first grade. I haven't seen him. I don't know anything about him medically in all this time, and they can't decide who going to do this and they're all arguing about who's going to do it and that to me that's the picture of what it looks like in the church when we just can't make ourselves have a hard conversation with someone we love them we say we love them 
We can see what's, what they're doing to their lives. We can see how far away they are moving from not only God, but from the herd, so to speak. We can see how much they are endangering themselves spiritually to the work of the enemy in their lives. And we say we love them, but I'm not doing that. That's the church pretending to be the church, but that's not the church Jesus had in mind. We are supposed to be involved in one another's lives and leaning into one another's lives and influencing one another and helping one another. And I think that what, one of the things that we're allowing our culture to do to us is we're allowing our culture to change how we define what love looks like. We're allowing our culture to tell us, if you love me, then you'll let me do anything I want to do. Can you even imagine that for your teenager? If your teenager says, I should get to do anything I want to do. No, that's not really what parenting, the way parenting works. And that's not the way love looks. That's not love. I, have, I've, I had friends when I was, I didn't have parents who let me do anything I wanted to do. But I had friends who had parents that were absent and let them do anything they want to do. And I don't mind telling you, if you ask those friends today if they were loved by their parents, they would tell you no. Letting us do anything we want to do, that's not love. That's not love at all. And by the way, disagreeing with one another is not hate. We've got to stop that. And so we've got, to, we've got to take back in the church what love looks like and how it works. And we've got to be asking ourselves, what should love look like in this particular situation? And I think we can do a better job of that in taking responsibility. Now, I think we can also do a better job of giving that responsibility to our church on our behalf. We can do a better job of asking our church to really lean into us and help us be a better person. I think we can do a better job of that too. Accountability always works best when it's something you pull up around yourself rather than go and try to impose it on someone else. It's something that you pull up around yourself because you know that you'll never become the person God's called you to become all by yourself. It just can't happen. Accountability is a funny thing in that way. Um, being a part, fill in this next blank, being a part of the body of Christ means we take responsibility for one another's relationship with God. But when we read all of these scriptures, let's be honest, Galatians 6, Matthew 18, um, James chapter 5, confessing our sins to one another. Oh my goodness, you got to be kidding, Blake. No, that's not going to happen. That's why I left the Catholic Church, because I didn't want to have to confess my sins to, some, to an actual human being anymore. Um, confronting a brother, uh, you who, the loyal yoke fellow <clears throat> that Paul calls upon in the Philippian church to confront Euodia and Syntyche and come up around them and help them. That notion of confronting, that notion of of coming alongside someone and asking them hard questions to, to begin to redirect them, that, that notion of going after, of leaving the 99 sheep on the hillside and going after the one sheep who is beginning to wander away and make themselves more and more vulnerable to the lion on the prowl, uh, going after them and turning them and bringing them back into the, into the flock, that whole notion, all of those scriptures 
feel to us in our culture, they feel very foreign to us. They feel very, uh, yeah, I'm not sure we're supposed to do that. They, they, these, these are some of the passages where our tendency is to say, well, that's that culture. That's the ancient early church culture. But that doesn't really fit in our culture because we're different now. I think we, 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 we don't like those verses and they feel foreign to us. And here's the underlying reason. They didn't feel foreign to those Christians in the early church because those Christians were living in intimate, loving relationships with one another. They were involved in one another's lives. I'm convinced that when Peter called Ananias and Sapphira before him and said, you said that you tithed off of this, but that was a lie, and he struck them dead. I am convinced that everyone in the church pretty much already knew that they had lied about it. I don't think it was a secret. Because those churches were living with lives intertwined with one another. They were doing life together. They were involved in each other's lives. They were leaning in. And so it didn't feel foreign for Paul to say, don't you get it? Don't you get it? You should be confronting one another. It wouldn't feel foreign to them for Jesus to say to them, when one of you sins secretly, it creates a spiritual tsunami through the entire congregation because you're going to be living connected with one another. It's like a computer virus. And you're all connected to one another. And when you're connected to one another, you have to be very careful about what you allow in. That's the point. And so in those cultures, yeah, it didn't feel foreign to them. It feels completely foreign in our culture today, in Western culture, because we don't live, we don't do church relationships like that. But we should be. Now, on this subject of accountability, I am not suggesting, I am not suggesting that everybody in my congregation should know every sin in my life. But I am suggesting that I should be living in relationships where people do know what's going on in my life. And, and I, I think of it in terms of concentric circles of accountability. I have a, uh, my Sunday morning Bible study, the group that I, that I teach called The Gathering on Sunday morning. Well, that's a group this size. That's, that's probably 70 or 80 people. And that's a big circle of accountability. And they know a lot about me, but they don't know everything about me. And then I have a, a deacon body at my church that's a little smaller that's within that that I'm a part of, an elder body. And they know a little bit more about me. They don't know everything about me. And then I have a, a Monday school. My Monday night small group is my small group, my life group. And we've been meeting every Monday night for 24 years. The same people. We've raised each other's kids, and now we're raising each other's grandkids. They know a lot more about me. They know what I'm afraid of. They know my insecurities, and they know a lot of my sins. But they don't know all of them. And then I've got Scott Center and Don Guthrie. And Cappy Coffee, my wife. And those three people know everything. They know the stuff that if you knew it, you wouldn't invite me to come and speak at your church. They know everything. They know everything. And they are the ones who have permission to ask me the hard questions. Questions that I wouldn't answer in most settings. Wouldn't want to answer. So I'm not saying that accountability is such where you, everyone knows everyone's business. I am saying, though, that we're supposed to have accountability in our life. We're supposed to have people in our lives who love us enough to ask us the hard questions and who are doing that 
with us and for us. Lastly, on this subject of accountability, and I really wish I could spend more time on this, but I, there's just, we, we don't have it. Um, but I, I want you to see that in the church, if you look at all of the passages that talk about accountability, and there are many, there are many, particularly in the New Testament, all of the passages, and you begin to, to merge them all together and come out with a process for accountability, for how it works, for when someone in the church is making decisions that are pulling them away from God and away from the church, how should we respond? Okay? When you look at all the, the, the uh, verses that apply to that and that look at it and you begin to put together a process for doing that, here's the way, here's the way it will look. The first thing you do is you go and you love the brother. You go and you love the brother. Responding to bad behavior in the church, filling in blanks, always requires going to the brother or sister. And in going to him, the biblical priorities are, number one, love him. And you don't do anything else until you've done that first. You've established right up front, this is the reason I'm here. Because I love you too much to let you keep doing this. I have your best interests in heart, at heart. You're the, I care for you. You matter to me. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because of anything else. And I have to check my own heart in that. If the reason I'm coming to them is because they've embarrassed the church and I need to get rid of them, I ain't doing it right. Or, because, or if the reason I'm coming to them is because I don't like this decision in their life, and by the way, they didn't vote the same way I did in the last presidential election, so by golly, I'm going to confront them about some things. I'm not ready for this. I've got to be going to them because I genuinely care for them, and I've got to be able to show that. And, and depending on the relationship, it may take a while to establish that and that alone. But the second priority then, the second priority, is to be reconciled to him. Just between the two of you, make sure there's not anything between the two of you that's going to make it hard for this brother to hear you. Make sure any past pains that need to be dealt with are dealt with and put aside so that that's not getting in the way. There's, there's nothing preventing us from seeing the truth about one another. Be reconciled to him. The focus there is on our relationship with one another. And then, then and only then, if we've done those two things, then I get to start asking questions, number three, about restoration, about his relationship with God. Now, that's what, that's what the goal has been from the get-go, but I don't get to start there. I have to do these other things first in order to make that one productive. And I get to begin asking harder questions then about, tell me, what, tell me what's going on in your walk with the Lord. When you pray about this, what are you hearing? When you search the scriptures about this subject, what's coming up? What are you seeing? You say you've surrendered this to the Lord. Convince me of that. You say that no matter what God says to you about this, you'll do it. Help me believe that. So, talking about their relationship with God is what you wanted to do from the beginning. That's what love looks like, but you don't get to start there. You have to start with love. You have to get through reconciliation between the two of you to make sure there's nothing between the two of you. And then you can talk about that. And then lastly, number four, sometimes, sometimes there is correction needed. In most cases, if numbers one, two, and three have all 
nailed it and hit exactly the way they're supposed to, and they are now fully restored to the Lord, in most cases, correction's not needed. In some cases, it will be. If it's an addictive behavior, uh, if there's some kind of professional help or boundaries that are needed to put it, be put in place, that's, what I, that's the kind of corrective behavior. But in most cases, you won't even need correction because you've done the other three well. Now, what I want you to look at is I want you to look at that order. Love, then reconciliation, then restoration, then correction. And what I want you to just recognize and own is this. That order of priorities is exactly the opposite from the way the world teaches it. And that's so important for us to recognize in the church. You break a law in the world's systems and our system, and by the way, I think we've got the best system of government on the planet. I do. Our justice system. It's horribly flawed. It's horribly broken. There are so many things wrong with it, but it's better than anywhere else in the world. I'm convinced of that. But it does this exactly the opposite from the way Scripture teaches us to do it within the church. You break a law in our system, number one, correction. You go to jail. You pay your fine, whatever. Number two, if you've done, paid your fine, if you've done your time in prison, you've done the jail, you've kept your nose clean, you've been pretty good, then we'll talk about restoring you into a relationship with the community. We'll let you out. If you do that and do it well, then we'll talk about whether you can move in next door to me. And we can actually reconcile and have a relationship. And if we do do that, and it's going to be on a probationary basis only, and if you do really well with that and I decide you're safe, then and only then can we be friends and I will love you. Do you see that? Do you see how it's exactly the opposite? And so it's very counterintuitive the way the church, the way God's called his church to respond to bad behavior among us. It's very counterintuitive. It's not supposed to look like the world. It's supposed to look way different from the world. In fact, the world should be pointing to us and saying, I don't get that at all. I don't understand those people. That's weird. Look what they're doing. They love each other even after they've committed these horrible crimes. They still love each other. And they're still forgiving. That makes no sense to me. That's what the world should be saying about the church. So this principle of accountability, there's so much to this. Uh, I'm, I just keep back, I, I feel apologetic because I, I want very much to really sit down with you and really dive into all of these and we just don't have the time. And so I'm hoping that you've heard enough in this principle though to begin to, to piece together, wow, there's something to this. I probably do need to rethink some of this in terms of how I'm held accountable. How do I want to be held accountable? Who holds me accountable? Who's that in my life? Do I have those people in my life? Do I know for sure that if I began making weird, off-the-cuff, brain-dead decisions that were pulling me away from the Lord, do I know for sure that there are people in my life who will be in my face, loving me too much to let me do that? And if not, how do I get that? What can I do about that? That's what this principle is all about. You can't talk about unity in the church without talking about accountability.